As we stand, let's pray together. Lord God, we ask that as we've sung your praises never fail, we may meet you and your purposes in your word this morning. And know even more firmly your purposes for us as your word reveals them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please sit. And do please find uh, page 1191 in the Church Bibles. It is a week in which we've seen that shipwreck matters. A week in which the shipwreck that's referred to here in 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 1 and verse 19 seems like more than just picture language. People, we've been reminded, perish in shipwrecks. If we're talking shipwreck, we're talking about something that matters. And the way I'd like to deal with the passage that's in front of us this morning is to pick up two thoughts from a tiny phrase and then show how uh, the whole set of issues that Paul is concerned with highlights... Uh, from those two uh, tiny uh, moments. And then, if I can, I want to suggest that those two thoughts are still uh, as up-to-date as ever they were, and just as as much a matter of life and death uh, as uh, this shipwreck was then and the shipwreck this week has been uh, for us. And the phrase that I want to look at is just over the page, chapter 2 and verse 4. God wants all men to be saved. And the two thoughts are these. God wants all men, and the word he uses means people, all people to be saved. And then God wants all people to be saved. Tiny little phrase, but hugely important. All people to be saved. Early sermons in this series have already, I know, identified the challenges for the church in Ephesus, where Timothy finds himself, where Paul indeed has sent him, left him. The young church is facing challenges from within, as some of its own leaders or elders are actively pursuing and teaching falsehood. And what we get, as always in a letter from Paul, is is one half of a phone call. From what is said in this letter, and to some extent in the one that follows, 2 Timothy, we get a sense of the problem, the challenge that is facing the gospel itself. These two words, all and saved, are as good a way as any of finding our way into what Paul is about here. Let's head to the beginning then of the passage. Uh, Chapter 1 and verse 18. Timothy, my son... I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Now, we're not sure what those prophecies were. But whatever they were, they were some kind of indication from God himself of the role that Timothy was to play. And Paul is reminding him, stiffening his resolve, because that role is under attack, real attack. He means it when he says you're going to fight 
the good fight. And that role is going to be needed more than ever. There are insiders within the church who are leading others astray. Later on, they're described as conceited. And so I guess it would take great courage to tackle them on their home ground. But that is what's needed. It is a good fight to take on. Sometimes we wonder whether the fight is worth it. But this is a good fight. You need to do it, Timothy. Remember what was prophesied going into your ministry. Let your resolve be stiffened. Timothy, you need to keep your conscience clear as you undertake that fight. Never mind the way that the others are fighting. They seem conceited. They're proud. I want you to stay away from any of that kind of insecure cockiness that can uh, overtake you when fighting in this way. But the fight needs to be had. And then most unusually, Paul goes on in verse 20 to name two particular leaders, Hymenaeus and Alexander. If he names them, you know it's serious. Not much we can learn about them, but it's always a severe measure if Paul names them. And we can only guess how bad it was from the fact that Paul himself has already taken action. And he's put them outside the church's public boundary. And that's what this odd phrase seems to mean. Did you notice it as we went through in verse 20? Whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. When he says it, he, feel, he clearly doesn't feel he needs to explain it. It's clearly, I, I guess, therefore, a, a kind of technical phrase that was in use. What Paul has done is he's set them uh, apart from the church. He's moved them from the kingdom that is God's people inside to the kingdom that is not God's, that is Satan's, where Satan rules outside the church. But even there, he hasn't done it finally. It's not final. It is in the hope that they will learn from the experience not to blaspheme. And that takes us to our first clue, our first real clue as to what's going on. Whatever is going on, the issue is blasphemy. There's a distortion at the heart of it, of who God is. So when Paul begins chapter 2 with a then, I urge then, we're meant to hear all that follows as a response to this blasphemy. And the kind of thing it is, is immediately clear. Prayers of all kinds should be made for everyone. Now, there's other things going on. We'll look at those. But you can't help but see this emphasis on everyone popping up through the next few verses. All men, in verse 4, as I said. All men, in verse 6. So the false teachers are in some ways saying that the benefit of the gospel, the benefit of God, is restricted to some. And the main clue to who they might be is towards the end when Paul expresses his own calling in verse 7. He knows he's a teacher to the Gentiles. So the false teachers are probably restricting salvation to the Jews. They're in Ephesus. It's an Asian town. It's, they're surrounded by pagans. 
Some of them will have come from a pagan background and ended up worshipping alongside the Jews. They'll, they'll be wanting to maintain their distinctiveness from the pagans around them. And so, uh, some of them will have uh, perhaps even suffered for being uh, alongside the Jews. They will be acutely aware of all that is not Jewish. So for Paul to come along and say, by the way, this is great news for the Gentiles, they have a choice. Either we rejoice because those who used to be opposed are now included, or we say, well, we don't want it to go to the Gentiles because it's for us. And that's exactly what they seem to have been doing. I said there are other things going on. Prayer should be made for everyone. Roger began our prayers with a prayer for the Queen. Serious prayer. We don't know what requests and prayers and thanksgivings and intercessions would kind of add up to. We don't know how one differs from another. But Paul kind of piles it on, so he must have, whatever he means, he means pray seriously and include kings and those in authority. And the job of such authority is to provide what he calls peaceful and quiet lives. I wonder if your life is quiet and peaceful. Do you come from one of those suburbs of Norwich where you left your, your neighbours this morning quietly, peacefully, uh, either in bed or polishing their car on a, on a gentle Sunday morning? Is that Paul's vision of the church? No, Alan, you're right. He does not mean a life serenely untroubled by any difficulty. If he did, we'd all been a mess. What he means is that we are to cause the right kind of challenge to our society. It might be that these false leaders are rejecting the notion of civil authority as such. They might be rejecting the rule of the Roman emperor as such, as rule. They might be being heard to spread sedition. It certainly seems from other things that we'll hear about as we go through the letter that they were living lives that were causing a scandal to those around them. Whatever they were doing, it was making it harder for the rest to be getting on with what really matters, calling men and women and boys and girls to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the main point of the passage, but we should spend a moment on it. Because I guess in our day, you've just got to listen to the news this week. We, we listen to that, or perhaps to Romans 13, and it sounds horribly conservative. We find ourselves saying, yes, but what about the tyrant? What about the dictator who oppresses his people? Surely, we're not supposed to uphold those tyrants and dictators in prayer. We're not supposed to live quietly in the face of that kind of oppression. And I reckon it says something about us that that is our first thought. Paul's first thought is different. What about sin, which oppresses all people, and from which they have a right to be released by the hearing the story of Jesus. 
A verse or two like that can really put the question to us. Are we truly formed to think along the grain of Scripture? Or do we really take the same basic worldview as everyone else out there and put a, put a little light dusting of spirituality on top of it? Saddam Hussein was, and Bashar al-Assad is, a brutal dictator. Uh, the same was true of Marshal Tito. But as each one falls, or has fallen, in each of those uh, three countries, Iraq, Syria, Yugoslavia, life for Christians has got worse. There is a proper place for the bringing down of tyrants. But we are the people of Christ before we are the people of a liberal democracy. So let us not jump to assumptions about what God might be up to in a world over which he is completely sovereign and not more sovereign over us in our country with the oppressions we face than over the oppressions of some other and more awful place conveniently placed at a distance from us. We are here to cause the right kind of challenge to society, a challenge that disturbs by asking each person to face, within the sphere in which they're set, the total claim of Jesus Christ upon their life. And we are oppressed by internal sin long before we get to be oppressed by an external political threat. And it looks as though the false teachers were men behaving badly, and women too. Godliness and holiness are listed in verse 2 as things that the, the, the political authority is there to ensure. Uh, that we may live lives like that. Not that the, polit the political people can do it, but they can make a space for the church in which the church can live in holiness and godliness. But it says something that that word holiness is there, because that's not the word. The word is actually respectability. But can you imagine having the responsibility of a... Of a of a translator these days, and having the nerve to say in a translation of a word that we are to be respectable. Doesn't it just sound incredibly dull? Doesn't it just sound so Victorian? Doesn't it smack of hypocrisy? But it is the word, and they were so terrified that they, they kind of reached for that sort of secondary meaning of, of looking righteous. But Paul meant respectability. Not in a dull or hypocritical way at all. What he means is that the lives we lead, the moment we walk out that door and before it by, in our conversation, must be lives that cause no scandal to the world around us, except for the right reasons. Yes, we can be scandalous, in, in, in various godly ways, by turning the world upside down with our radical nature. 
But we must not be scandalizing the world by misbehaving in the way that these guys were. By, by uh, rabbiting on and making God sound like a subject of just wittering. By uh, inappropriate sexual uh, behaviors. By fussing about the wrong kind of things. The word is respectability. And it says something that it's translated uh, holiness. The faith of Christ is always personal. Must be. But it is never private. It's meant to lead to an effect on our public behavior. And it looks as though the false teachers were giving the faith a bad public name, leading to shipwreck for some. So before we just finish the first of those topics, that sense of all, let's look at verse 4 itself. Uh, God, the Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, uh, There are some times when the translation matters, and I've just covered one. There's no help in the translation. If you'd like it to say something else at this point, you can't get there. So what does it mean? Does it mean that God would sort of quite like it if everyone could be saved, but poor God, he just hasn't got the clout to bring it about? No, Alan, no, you're right, it doesn't. That's not the God that Paul proclaims, is it? More likely, just as he puts the emphasis in verse 7 on being a teacher to the Gentiles... What he means here when he says all men is all kinds and conditions. The Gentiles and the Jews, the rich and the poor, the the tall and the David Everett's. It rejoices my heart to know that David right now is gigantic. And I will be one day. It's it's everyone, all kinds and conditions, all people to be saved. Those whom God has chosen from all eternity in his heart to be his children come from all over the place. We must not, we may, may never restrict the gospel. And so let's move to our other word, saved. In verse 3, God is called God our Saviour. Just as he is at the onset in chapter 1 and verse 1, God our Saviour. Why, why that? Not our Creator, for example. Well, we learn from uh, verses 6 and 7 in chapter 1 that these false teachers engage in meaningless talk involving an abuse of some kind of the Jewish law, probably pushing it much further than it would want to go. They're conceited, they've got a bad reputation for scandal. They know, they teach regulations about not marrying, about abstaining from certain foods. It looks, in fact, as though what matters for these teachers, the very essence of getting to God with these teachers, is what you know, what you've learned, the rules you can follow to make God like you. It is the act of teaching itself that's getting distorted. 
when Paul comes to verse 7, look at what he says very precisely. <clears throat> he says, For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle and, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher. They clearly then are setting themselves up as teachers. And Paul is saying, I'm a herald, I'm an apostle, and listen, folks, I am a teacher. That is the essence of what we're about. According to them, to get to God, most of all, you just have to know stuff. And that's the blasphemy. Because Paul insists you can know as much as you like, even if it's correct, which in your case it isn't, But if you don't realize it's about being saved, you are nowhere. Saved from sin, you are nowhere. I was myself a blasphemer, he says in verse 13, but I was shown the mercy that I needed. Chapter 1 and verse 15, the first of the trustworthy sayings. Christ came to save sinners. It's not about what you know. It's not most particularly what you know of the rules. It's about whether you know yourself to be a sinner, needing God to save you. That is what represents, according to verse 4, knowledge of the truth. And Paul follows it up with the kind of the bones of the story in verses 5 and 6, and perhaps this comes from an old creed, there is one God, he says, and one mediator, because a perfect God and a sinful humanity needs someone to stand between. And that, that mediator is the man Jesus, who because he was man, he was one of us, a human being could offer himself and did in fact offer himself as a ransom for all of us. We are what we've sung, the purchase of God, We are what we will sing, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And I hope it won't won't seem out of place to say that that's what David Everett knew. What would David want to say now to us who are gathering only a day or so? after his own death, surely what he would want to say is, please get to know what I myself knew. He was a tiny man with a heart as big as a house. And he knew what it was to be ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven. He knew what it was that Jesus Christ was, Jesus Christ had paid with his life the debt that our sins run up. That little word, for, in verse 6, it's at the heart of the good news of Jesus. And I, I pray, I plead with you, I urge you, if you have not got that little word in your heart today, it's something you need to get hold of before you can say you understand the good news of Jesus. His life as perfect, for our lives as sinful. If there's only one God and one mediator, then that God and mediator have to be for all people. Paul comes back to his theme. Paul, God wants all people to be saved. 
And so let's seek to apply all of that. This blasphemy wasn't an, an import from outside. It arose within the very life of the church. And while we may not know the names of any who might formally teach this kind of false teaching, isn't it true that there is a danger within each one of us, within the church, that we forget it's about being saved? How many of us slide into a sense, not not a, not a clear blasphemy, just a vague sense, that, well, we're here, and it's Sunday, it's where people who know this stuff gather, we got here, It is possible to sleepwalk through our Sundays and forget the power of our own testimony, let alone that of others. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. God has reached down from eternity and his mercy has found me a sinner. Do we sing as those rejoicing that we, even we, are saved? And from being saved, we turn our eyes outside to a world in which roughly 70% of people say they believe in God. And we may think that that makes them okay. But of course it means nothing. If they only believe in God, they may only believe in the kind of meaningless talk and fanciful speculation that these guys were teaching. I'm doing some work in uh, John Calvin, the reformer at the moment, and his, his greatest book, begins like this, true wisdom consists in knowing God and in knowing ourselves. We only really know God when we know that we ourselves are sinners who need saving. And if you don't know that about yourself this morning, then hang around and pray uh, with Peter and Joanne after our service. Come along to Christianity Explored. Do what you need to do. That's for saved. Let's keep our eyes, though, out in the world as we close with that other little word, all to be saved. How many people did you encounter this week? For some, very few. For others, very many indeed. I was thinking, maybe someone here is a a cashier in a supermarket. You must have hundreds, possibly thousands of people going in front of you during the course of the week. Perhaps some of you were at Norwich Chelsea just seeing thousands of other people. There is not one of whom you can say, that one doesn't need saving. Of course, if we took it seriously, the thought would drive us to tears, like it did John Wesley when he found himself in tears walking the streets of London and seeing the people that he said were like sheep without a shepherd. And because it could drive us to tears, we kind of close it down, perhaps, Let's then just look at the circle of our acquaintance. There's not one of them of whom we can say, you don't need saving. I'm always puzzled when we run Christianity Explore that we're not inundated with numbers that we've invited. That's not to say that I invite loads. I'm as liable as anyone else to get numb to the true need of my friends. If I invite them, many will say no. And I'm sure that's part of what puts me off and you. But we can invite them. We at least know their true situation, even if they don't. And the Word of God is there to remind us of the truth of their situation, even if the the appearance looks so happy and different. 
They, like we, are in need of a saviour. Sinners in need of a saviour. Every single one. There's no one too high, no one too low. Everyone falls inside what Paul has to say to Timothy. Once we start to say, even in our own hearts, that this one or that one won't be interested, then we are beginning to make shipwreck of the faith of Christ. Let me end with a story against myself. A couple of guys came to our door a few weeks ago. It was really bad timing. It turned out they were new window cleaners after some business. And they wanted to know what our current window cleaner cost. Uh, I, I, of course, didn't have a clue. And Natalie was out, so uh, one of them asked for a piece of paper, wrote down his name, and contact number, and that took a moment or two. In that moment or two, the other one, standing there, looked over to the church and said, I used to come here as a boy. And then the other one said, oh yeah, me and the wife, we go to, and then named another congregation in the city. I felt very ashamed as I went back to my work. I'd slipped into the trap of making an assumption. I don't know them, They must live in a different world from me, my work, and the church of God. And God rebuked me through them with a reminder that he wants all people to be saved, and he has set about it. And maybe some of us, as we gather here this morning, need to face the same rebuke. Let's pray. Lord God, we have heard the story of death this week, of those who have died in a shipwreck. It is a life and death matter. And as we gather, and we're coming towards the end of the service, and probably we've we've calculated, well, we've had the prayers, we've done most of our singing, and this is about the time we'll be able to get out. we can forget that what we're about here in the good news of Jesus Christ is a life and death matter. And we pray not only for our friends, though we do, we pray not only for those beyond our friendships who have never heard of you and their need of you, though we do, but for the sake of your glory, as a God whose praise is worthy across the earth because you want all people to be saved. That's why we pray. We want your glory to blaze forth. May we upset our society for the right reasons, not by scandalizing it, but by lives that live in contradiction to its values. Lord, give us the grace to live as those who are saved and to open our mouths and have an explanation and an invitation that others may find what for inexplicable reasons we find for ourselves that you have reached down and saved us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.